How we doing, everybody? New York University has own Sarah Phillips. I speak African American English, Korean, and mainstream American English, and this is The Fluent Show. A podcast all about loving and living and learning languages. Hello, my name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk. That's a website where you can get tips and guidance and courses to help you with language learning mindset, language learning study skills, and just becoming a lot more successful. I am your host of The Fluent Show, here to talk to you about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language, with a cat or without. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let her stay for the intro, just for the intro. And today I have got an interview for you with Sarah Phillips, who is a linguist, neuroscientist, super interested in code switching, which is what happens when you talk in one language and then in another language, and then you speak in another language again. So when you switch languages and sometimes when just you open your mouth and you want to speak French and English comes out. What happens? What happens in the brain? What happens socially? What is it that influences those things? That's what our interview is about. She was a fabulous guest. I can't wait to introduce her to you. Before that, I've got two announcements that I really want to tell you about. The first is about our wonderful sponsor, Yabla Language Learning. If you haven't engaged with Yabla yet, if you haven't had a look around yet, or if you haven't visited yabla.com slash show recently, head on over there because there's a video there now that I made you showing you exactly how I use Yabla for learning Chinese and how you can use it for learning German, French, Spanish, Italian, or even English. And it shows you how the subtitles work, how this uh, slow play system works, how to control the playback in to granular, incredibly helpful levels, and just a, a glimpse of the super entertaining content that is available on Yabla. So just head over there to yabla.com slash fluentshow to get my new guided tour and figure out how to use this incredible video platform for study and for immersion in any of those six languages I mentioned. Thank you so much to Yabla for supporting the Fluent Show. And secondly, if you are interested or you're curious about improving your study routine, getting organized, getting a kind of study plan together for yourself, and you're saying, this is the year, I'm going to get fluent, I can do it. But maybe you're feeling a bit lost or you're feeling a little bit confused about how to how to learn languages solo, it can be very difficult, then I wanted to let you know that I'm running my next live round of the Language Habit Toolkit starting the 15th, that is next week. And you can join simply by joining the Language Habit Toolkit. And on Friday, I will give you a little bit of a sneak preview and tell you a little bit more about the Language Habit Toolkit in my free training. And that is called How to Get Fluent When Life's Chaotic. So come and join me, How to Get Fluent When Life's Chaotic. That's my new free training. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> so show notes for this episode are at fluent.show slash 209. Head over to fluent.show slash 209. It's where you'll read a little bit more about Sarah, get to know Sarah, my guest for today. And also you'll have the opportunity to sign up for that free training called How to Get Fluent When Life's Chaotic. Let's bring some order into things. Let's bring some structure. Let's get organized. Thank you so much for listening to the announcements. And now let's not delay any longer. Let's meet Sarah Phillips. She is awesome. Sarah Phillips, let me introduce her to you listeners. She is a PhD student in the Department of Linguistics at New York University. As someone who identifies as Blasian and grew up speaking Black English and Korean, code switching sits at the center of her research. This complex phenomenon of alternating languages during discourse has been widely studied in linguistics, in psychology and in neuroscience, but the aim of Sarah's research is to integrate approaches from all three fields to develop a more holistic perspective on the bilingual mind. So for those of us who are learning languages, I think we've all encountered code switching in one way or another and there's going to be so many questions about it 
and we've got heritage language learners. It's just you're like the woman <laughs> to ask about this. Sarah, how did you come to this magical topic? Yeah, so I actually came to this because of my own personal experiences. And I'm realizing now that I feel like I'm one of those mythical unicorns in a sea of unicorns. It's just one of those things where, um, you know, being someone who is a person of color engaging in academia, going to, going to college was already an eye-opening experience because of the fact that I was going to a predominantly white institution as a black and Korean American. And not only was I black, but it was like among all the black people, I'm also mixed. So I just had a certain set of experiences growing up with my parents that were just different. And a lot of that had to come down to language. My mother, who is from Korea, she grew up speaking Korean. She actually thought that she would never speak English, which is hilarious. This is why she argued with her English teacher in high school and told her teacher that she was never going to learn English. She'll never need it ever. And then she married my father and has been living now in the United States for over 30 years. And her command of English is amazing. Still has some funny things with L's and R's, but other than that, you know, she's spot on. She engages in customer service now, which is insane. And so you have that. And then my father, who is a black man from North Carolina, we grow up speaking a form of African-American English that is, you know, this interesting language variety that has really descended through, you know, Africans being brought into slavery, into the United States and learning English and have taken this language into its own and it's grown into its own um, unique linguistic entity. And and it, within that entity, it's also diverse. So it's just fascinating to realize that when I grew up speaking African-American English around um, really my dad's parents and the rest of my dad's family, we we it was normal for us to just switch between um, Korean with my mother and black English or Amer African-American English with the rest of my family while at home in North Carolina. It wasn't until I really left for college that I realized neither one of these language varieties was going to let me be fully successful in college. And that's when I really tapped into developing my own form of the mainstream American English, something that typically gets perpetuated in academia or in, you know, the news, like how television reporters will typically talk. And so I had this like interesting culmination of just trying to figure out how do I speak? What to whom and when? Um, and that led me to uh, linguistics eventually. I was at the University of Georgia doing my undergrad. I originally thought I was going to study chemistry. I thought I was going to do something in pharmaceuticals because stoichiometry was my thing. And then I realized I hated lab. I hated lectures. Like nothing about chemistry excited me. Um, and so I I went to my undergraduate advisor at the time and I said, well, I think I'm going to do international affairs because I did Molly Glenn in high school. I really liked international relations. That's what I'm going to do. And my undergrad advisor was like, you know, I see that you're also taking some foreign language classes, but you're really good at science, even if it's not really your thing. You should think about linguistics. It's the scientific study of language. And I was like, what? That exists? Like, Stop for a second. I, I'm 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 making sure I understand this correctly, you know. And <laughs> um, and you know, now to make a long story even longer, I <laughs> took my first linguistics class and just fell in love. I felt like, oh wow, like this can help me better understand and better explain what it is that I'm doing uh, when it comes to what I'm speaking and how I'm speaking and how other people talk and how we as people do this thing that involves language. And it's, yeah, it's been an amazing journey ever since. So you felt more drawn to linguistics because you, your language stood out. You as a, as a speaker were so different from everybody else and you were doing things that were very different. So switching from black American English into Korean fluently, it, it's not something you hear about every single day. Definitely not. Definitely not. And, and it's not to say that other people like me don't exist 
but it mm-hmm. it is few and far in between, right? So I know of other Blasians, um, you know, that are Black with some other Asian mix, whether that's Filipino or Vietnamese or Korean, Japanese, I mean, Chinese, like it, it there's a whole slew of possibilities when it comes to being Blasian. But what ends up happening is a lot of the Blasians that I end up meeting only stick to one of the languages that um, that makes up their identity, right? So especially here in the United States, and this is true, you know, not just for Blasians, but the tendency is for people to speak English. So even if, let's say, a parent speaks um, some other language, let's say Spanish, or in my case, Korean, there is a tendency for the the child to stick with English because that is the pervasive and dominant language here in the United States. And there's a lot of social expectation to speak English and not just speak English, but speak English well to American standards, whatever those standards are. And I, I realized that like, I had this unique ability to not only engage with African-American English, at least the variety that's spoken in the Carolinas with family and friends um, back home. But I have this um, accessibility to Korean and I do speak with family in Korea. And whenever we would go in the summers, I would be there for months at a time. And, you know, that whole immersion thing does change how you engage with the language um, in terms of like, oh, now I'm dealing with Korean as Korean people in Korea and specifically Seoul you know, how they communicate. And so um, I, I was just blessed with this very unique opportunity to feel very comfortable in, in both aspects of my identity and therefore both languages that um, are very attached to those aspects of my identity. And mm-hmm. it's very uncommon in terms of my own personal experiences, meeting other Blasian people and not necessarily seeing that same kind of thing happen in uh, with them. Yeah, you come to you come to it with with a level of confidence then, the you know, this type of background. And I picked up something you said a minute ago. You you said about sp- not just speak English but to speak English well. And then when you said that you, your language changed in the way that you use language. Now obviously I I live in Britain and uh I'm a I have I'm a native German speaker and and my I'm I don't know. <laughs> you know like I don't know how bilingual I am, um, but mm-hmm. I'm almost like translingual, I guess, because I just speak English all the time, but I can still speak German. So who knows? Um, that's probably not the right word. Anyway, this isn't about what, what I, where I wanted to go with it. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you said speak English well. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I know that the African-American vernacular, I know that black English exists in the USA and that it's sort of... It con- consistent within itself enough that it is considered sort of one variant, you know, in a way that here in the UK we've got, we've got the we've got a black community, more from Africa and then more from the Caribbean and this different, we've got more um, mixing here, and mm-hmm. in the USA it's a bit more segregated. Mm-hmm. I say a bit because I, <laughs> I don't know why it is more segregated, hundred percent. And it's a good job I can edit this because it's taking me six hours to get to this question. Um, but the real question <laughs> that I wanted to ask you is: uh, Can you can you tell me a little bit about how how Black American English is seen? Is it not seen as speaking English well? Oh, definitely not. Oh wow! And I think most Black people will tell you that. There, there is this ex- existential crisis that happens when they go into predominantly white spaces because they can either A, learn and figure out how to speak like other white people in that space, mm-hmm. or B, I can speak how I've always spoken as a Black American and it not be received um, very well. And what's interesting about it is the reasons why sometimes African American English gets per- perceived as being bad or less than is just because it's different and it's coming out of a racialized body. It's coming mm-hmm. out of a black body that embodies a lot of prejudice and a history of segregation and racism and oppression. So you, it's, it's, 
amazing. We talk about language being a social construct, but it really is in the sense that some of the pressures and opinions that we place on language aren't because of the language itself. It comes from ideas or, um, you know, misrepresentations about the speakers of that language. And so we're, we're experiencing this kind of shift right now among Black Americans who do speak African American English, uh, where they're going, you know what, I'm going to stick it to the man and not feel the need to code switch between what I normally speak and how they would want me to speak. Um, whereas others still see the value of code switching. And mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm one of those people who sees the value in code switching for the sake of effective communication. But uh, it, it does harbor a lot of negative feelings. And it's not to say that I don't also feel those negative feelings in those situations, because I know that no matter how well I can match my intonation and my, my, you know, grammar to what the mainstream white Americans are expecting of their own, um, of their own variety, it, it won't matter because at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who will still see me as a person of color and in particular, a woman of color and already have judgments and have already put on these expectations that I will never meet their standards. And so they've already wrote me off to, to put it bluntly. So yeah, it's, it's a very tricky thing. And when you say it's received not very well, do mm-hmm. you, do you, how do you think that that or how how do you experience that that would um, express itself? Is it sort of people slow down and talk to you as if you can't speak English? Or is it that people will dismiss what you are contributing and kind of talk over you? Or is it in, in what way does it really show itself? Yeah, it kind of manifests itself in all of the ways that you've imagined already. Yeah. So there definitely been times where people will not actually listen and dismiss what I have to say because they think that they can't understand me or Uh they will maybe even try to explain to me why the way that I said what I said wasn't effective or wasn't appropriate. And I was like, no, I meant exactly what. Oh, absolutely. Oh, nice. Um, Okay. And, you know, there are times where even as a native English speaker, I do make mistakes. And even as a native Korean speaker, I do make quote unquote mistakes um, which I have a whole pet peeve about mistakes. So we can talk about that in a minute. But when it comes to these things, it's like, yes, I understand that for how you want me to communicate, there are certain things that make sense to you by certain prescriptive standards that you have. But let's be real. You understood what I had to say. Mm-hmm. You were able to engage in this conversation with me. Why are you making it so difficult? There's no reason to make this so difficult. And it's, it's fascinating to me that as much as I do try to make that concerted effort, that effort is never perceived or received well, um, by these kinds of people. And it's not to say all white Americans do this, but there are enough where it makes it a very traumatic experience sometimes because you're just trying to be effective in communicating, especially if it has to do with your job or your career. And you have people of powers basically sitting there saying, well, I can't understand you, so I don't know what to do with you, oh basically. God. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, that must be really painful and really frustrating. And thank you for allowing me to to ask a question that brings that up. Uh, and, and it wasn't, it certainly wasn't to ask you to justify it. But it's really, it's interesting to me because I grew up in Germany speaking a local dialect. And when mm-hmm. I started going to primary school, my parents switched to like mainstream German with me. But I look like everybody else anyway. So it's not the same experience at all. And this double whammy of you talk different, but even if you talk the same, you would look different. And you, you know, like you, even if you look the same, you would talk different is, is really something that I think we need to spell out and we need to be super aware of. For sure. And it's interesting that it it also is different when it comes from someone, like you put it, when it comes from someone who looks more like you, right? So mm-hmm. I always find it interesting how forgiving some of these people can be when you're, let's say, a foreign learner of English, but you still are white presenting, mm-hmm. right? So you can come into a space as a German speaker, native German speaker, 
with maybe a slight accent in your English and people will still understand you fine. They might even think your accent is great or cute or they might have some like descriptive adjective to encourage you to speak more English around them. Mm -hmm. But that has a lot to do with some of the stereotypes that we embed on bodies and and what those bodies are producing when it comes to language. Oh yeah. And Germany yeah. Germany's a rich country. So like here in the in um in the UK, I mm -hmm. have uh like if I was to you know, if I think about the sort of European immigrants to the UK group, I have more status status. I I have to really, it's so uncomfortable to say, but it's like, I have more status, it frustrates me, than somebody who's from like Romania or Poland, because Germany is a mm -hmm. richer country. Right. And and I still don't, and then I still don't have maybe quite as much as maybe if somebody's from Sweden, because Germany, we've got the whole Second World War history. But we are right. getting off topic. <laughs> it's because it's so fascinating. And I think our identity and the way that we talk are so interlinked that I think you can't bring up one without the other. But let me take Absolutely. it back and ask you about, but ask me, ask you about your work because I'm so interested and I don't want to lose it. Uh, and I will. <laughs> uh, you described yourself as bidialectal and bilingual. So if I understand it correctly, you're bilingual as somebody who speaks English and Korean, and then you're mm -hmm. bidialectal as somebody who speaks several variants of English. Correct. And how? That's it. Yay! And how do you how do you code switch between them usually? Usually, when it comes to code switching, and I will define code switching as switching languages within a given discourse, whether that's in a sentence or in a turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really just depends on where I'm at, who I'm with, who's around me. I mean, a number of different factors and situations could prompt me to code switch. So. I remember there, I remember times where I had been out of Korea for a while and then I go back to Korea, right? And so there are going to be times where I might code switch because I can't remember this one word in Korean. And the only thing that's coming up in my mind is, is an English word. And so I might switch into English for that one particular word. But then there are other instances where maybe I'm in Korea and I'm explaining something that is inherently an American construct. Like, It's not something that is common or understood in Korean culture. And then that's where I might switch into English. So an example of this would be uh, talking about American football. American football is only really popular here in the United States. I mean, you have people outside of the U.S. that who might tap in and watch what's happening in the U.S., but they don't necessarily have like football teams and programs in the way that we do here. Instead, everyone has real football or soccer. Um, and that's a whole nother beast in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those interesting things that when I go into Korea, for example, I might say football to refer to American football, but then chukku, which is the Korean word for soccer. And it's a way of creating distinction, even though outside of like outside of the U.S., in other English-speaking countries, when you say football, people know soccer. They, they're not going to necessarily think American football, right? So it's, it's a way of me sometimes being very specific about what I'm trying to convey and discerning between two sports that happen to share a very similar name in English. Um, and then there are other instances where, you know, I love doing this with my mother. We're in Korea. We're walking around and we like to people watch. And so sometimes we'll, we'll watch someone or a group of people doing something that is, you know, weird or funny or just maybe something that is intriguing. And so then we might actually switch into English and have a whole conversation about what they're doing in English because mm -hmm. as much as there are a lot of Korean people in Korea who are trying to study English, it's kind of like studying a foreign language here in the United States where, yeah, you can learn it, you can know some words and phrases, but no one ever ends up being completely competent in it unless they pursue it seriously it's just something that you kind of do for school or whatever mm -hmm. and so you know people don't necessarily understand what we're talking about when we start switching into english in those kinds of situations so it's it's nice to talk about people without them realizing that we're talking about them and it doesn't have to be behind their back kind of situation so that definitely happens um you know these are all situations where depending on where I'm at and who I'm with and what is the topic of conversation, 
these are some of the factors that would lead me into code switching for sure. Mm -hmm. So code switching, the way that you're describing it, and and it's, I recognize a lot of those situations, including even, you know, quickly saying something in German to a German speaking friend, because I'm describing somebody who is not a German speaker, Uh, never maliciously. There's there's a lot of anxiety about that kind of thing, I think, but it's it's never really malicious. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of the, what you've described, you know, whether it's a word, whether it is to to describe a certain concept that exists more in American culture or in American contexts, whether it is because you just can't remember the word right now, that happens to me so much, and, or whether you are, you know, switching intentionally, you know, or like just choosing to talk Korean to your mother, even when you're in the USA. All those are intentional. And something that happens, that I know happens to me a lot is this sort of interference thing where mm-hmm. I will I will want to it, intentional or not intentional sometimes even it's the not being able to think of the word that kind of goes that way where my word flashes my brain flashes up a German word when I'm trying to think of a Spanish one thank you not useful mm-hmm. but also recently for example I've I tried to go back to my Spanish which is like 20 years ago but I can have you know, a very halting conversation in Spanish. So I'm there like trying to hablar español. Okay, okay, okay. And all these words come out in Welsh. I keep saying Welsh word, which is my main language that I'm learning. I've been learning for a while. Mm-hmm. Th- these languages have got nothing in, they've got barely anything in common. I don't understand what is happening. <laughs> and I had a listener question that came in. So that also spoke to this. So this is, this is like the plight of us language learners. <laughs> So I'm like, Professor Sarah, please fix it for us. Please tell us if we're <laughs> if we're broken. So you're not broken. It's actually a sign of a good thing. You is it? Okay, tell me how. It's tell me what's happening. What is this? Sure. So, um, well, we don't know all the reasons why we would get these interference effects, and that's actually what we call them as well in the field. So I, I love that this is something that translates well into the mainstream. Is is basically, yeah, you'll have instances where you think you're speaking in one language and all of a sudden you can't help but just, oh my God, I know the word for this or a way to describe this in this language, but it would be so much easier. Or maybe there's some weird reason, some other fluke reason why I'm thinking this word in, in your case, Welsh instead of English, or maybe a German word instead of English. And while we don't know all the reasons why this happens, what we do know, at least neurobiologically, is that when you are engaged in a bilingual mode, so when you're basically speaking with someone and and you have all of your languages available to you, your lexicon, this, you know, if you can imagine this dictionary that you have in your brain This dictionary is actually full of all the words, you know, whether it's from one language or another. And while we're still trying to figure out how this lexicon is organized, we do have at least some evidence to suggest that all the words of the languages that you know all sit in the same lexicon. They all sit freely existing in this one massive dictionary. Wow. And so it's not surprising that you will have words in another language kind of activate when even when you're engaged in one language, because you have all the words that you know available to you at any given point in time. So if anything, I think of this as a good thing, because then it suggests to me that you have awareness of the word, and you're either a figuring out how it works in a sentence, and so you're still playing around with that word, or b that you have command of the word. And there's something about this word that just fits in the sentence, even though socially, you think, oh, this might not be the best word to use because my my hearer, the person I'm talking with, my conversational partner is not going to understand this word because they don't know this language, right? So um, it's this interesting thing about knowing that all of our words exist in one spot for us, but um, what we haven't yet disentangled is what our brains are doing when it comes to making these social decisions as it comes to language. And so I think it's a good thing that you know this word and it's available to you and you know it's available to you. And so that's good. But uh, what that means in terms of why it pops up, we're still trying to develop models to account for this phenomenon. So I neurologically, my where the stuff is stored, actually stored in my brain, 
it's all in the same place and yes. the language i'm speaking that's that's always a psychological like i guess it's a decision that my brain makes at every every second again and again is that is that it more or less yes wow okay <laughs> <laughs> this is mind blowing how do you how do you find this out what do you what do you actually do to measure this or to figure this out Sure. So a number of studies that have uncovered this have been behavioral studies. Um, and so one kind of task we do this would be to show you maybe words that have similar meanings, but are different in terms of their pronunciation across languages. Um, or we might choose two words that sound similar, but they mean different things. And then we see how that affects your decisions in a task as you're primed with one of these options. So um, we typically call these priming tasks where you'll be presented with one word followed by a target word, and then you have to do something with that target word, whether it's to identify that it's a noun or a verb, or maybe you have to match it with a picture and seeing how long it takes for you to com complete this task. And the idea is that if we see interference, if we see that um, having these words kind of activate together in your lexicon, it should actually produce a different response than when they don't interfere with each other. And so a lot of these um, priming type tasks give us some ideas about how we actually have one lexicon rather than multiple lexicon for each language that we are learning or are acquiring or have already learned. So it's, uh, it's interesting. I, less familiar about the neuroscience behind uh, these types of tasks. But um, what I am familiar with is definitely more on this behavioral level. Mm -hmm. And this behavioral level then can get correlated with other types of studies that have been done neurobiologically, whether that's through fMRI or MEG um, or EEG. So um, fMRI, most people are aware, I think, of what fMRI is. Um, because a lot of you may have had a structural MRI. Um, so MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. Oh, my husband had one of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Super noisy. That's, that's all I heard about it afterwards was this is how noisy it was. Yeah, it's definitely a loud panging sound when you go and get a structural MRI done. Mm -hmm. We can also do what's called a functional MRI. Um, but basically what happens is an MRI is basically a massive magnet. And what it can do is align the, the molecules in your brain when you're getting at least a brain, like an MRI of your brain. Um, it aligns the molecules in your brain such that Anytime your brain, a part of your brain has to do some type of work, it actually will call for more blood to flow through because like any other part of your muscle, you need oxygen in those regions that are doing work. And so you'll see blood flow to carry oxygen to these parts of the brain that are doing more work. And we're able to see this by basically having this massive magnet align the molecules in your brain such that any displacement of these molecules gets detected by the machine. Um, it's interesting in that we can then see with great spatial accuracy where in the brain something's happening. But as you know, blood moves very, very slowly. So if you've ever given blood before, you know that that process takes forever And it definitely takes longer than it takes for you to do anything with language. And so we like to use this measure to have a better understanding of what brain regions are activated or really putting in work and effort when we're doing languagey things. This is different from MEG or EEG. So MEG is magnetoencephalography. EEG is electroencephalography. Um, I definitely spent years studying how to pronounce these words. So um, it's uh, it's quite a mouthful, but for short, MEG and EEG, they're both electrophysiological measures. And what they do is they actually measure brain activity through the electrical currents that fire in your brain. So when your brain is actually doing stuff and, and completing tasks, What's interesting is that the neurons, for them to be able to talk to each other to accomplish these tasks, they send off an electrical pulse 
between neurons. And when you have populations of neurons doing this thing, it generates an electrical current. What EEG will do is actually more directly measure this electrical current flow through your scalp, while MEG, what that actually picks up is the electromagnetic field that is generated from the electrical current flowing through your brain. So if there's anything you can take away from this, your brain has lightning inside and we can measure that and it's pretty cool. What? This, I'm just sat here going, I think I kind of knew this, but I never put it together with, with language and how we speak. And oh my God, humans are bizarre and magical and weird, aren't they? Aren't we? Wow. This is, thank you so much for explaining this. I'm just super excited hearing about this. So I, this is, this is just fascinating. So tell me whether, tell me whether code switching then, if everything kind of lives in the same place in the brain, you think is, is essentially like we said about the interference, just a, um, it's prompted by your environment and it's always prompted by your environment and what maybe influences how much choice, conscious choice we have over it versus unconsciously just switching around. Like I'm thinking about when my husband comes to hang out with my family and he's, he's British um, and he speaks mm -hmm. a bit of German, but not really like that, you know, not, not everyday conversation at the same speed kind of German. And I'm in between and my mom will say something to him and she insists on talking German to him. So, or she'll talk to me. So automatically I stand in between and do a lot of interpreting between them. There's inevitably mm -hmm. the moment where I turn around to him and just go full on German because I can't keep it straight who I'm talking to and which language, which person stands for anymore. Yeah. So unfortunately we haven't done enough research neurobiologically to understand what happens when we get into these um, situations and how quickly we, we can, or maybe can't switch. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there have been, there has been a model put forth called the inhibitory control model, um, that has now included this thing called the adaptive control hypothesis. So this is coming from David Green, who's actually at UCL. So, hey, London. Um, and, uh, Huben Abutalebi, which I don't remember where he's currently located. I think he might be in Norway, um, at NIT, but, I could be wrong, so that would be Tromso, Norway. But the idea is that our brains are, or their models suggest that our brains actually have to um, make decisions and engage what we would call control processes to be able to either stick with one language or switch between languages. And these processes that we need to be able to manage our languages this is going to, by and large, be determined by our context. So whether or not we are in what's called a monolingual or a single language context where everyone around me is only speaking one language and so I'm only going to stay in one language, a dual language context, which sounds more like what happened between you, your husband and your, um, or your partner and your mother, mm -hmm. um, to suggest that you know, you would only use one language with one person and another language with another person, which I think actually sounds very tiring. So I'm not surprised that after a certain point, yeah, it's just kind of like long. I give up. <laughs> <laughs> um, versus a dense code switching context. And, and this is always the fun part with bilinguals because this would be an environment where you have a bunch of bilinguals and they're all, you know, proficient in all of the same languages. And so they can just freely go about um, all the languages that they know. Mm. And, and what I think is happening is that when we're in this dual language context, that's actually what's probably taking the most effort and where we have to assert the most control. And if I remember their model correctly, this is where we would have to use these control processes to um, better manage these kinds of situations. And for them, they think that, okay, there's this part of your brain that's responsible for other types of cognition. So um, attention and memory, these are words that we all are familiar with. But the idea is that regions that are associated with things like attention, what you're attending to at any given point, and memory, remembering what you're doing as things are happening. Um, these 
have to kind of work in overdrive mm. in, in certain contexts more so than in others. And so it, the impression sounds like in a dual language context, this is really, really hard in comparison to a dense code switching context where it might feel a little more natural. Like, I'm sure it would be nice if your mother and your partner both would just easily speak both English and German. So then all three of you would just continuously switch between the two languages uh, whenever you basically felt like it. And that ends up being maybe the path of excuse me, the path of least resistance for everyone mm. in that scenario. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole element where I'm like the social conduit in between them and everything my mom says where I feel he won't receive it right. I start moderating mm -hmm. and the other mm -hmm. way around. So it's a whole like kettle of fish. It's a madness. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it ends up getting hard because now you're not just thinking about the language itself. You're thinking about like the message, oh, the pragmatics of it. Yeah. Like, how is this going to land and how is this going to be interpreted? And this now I have to think about like what this person knows about this person and you have to remember okay I remember that this is how I interpreted this sentence and you're managing a lot of things at this point so yeah I definitely see that being very very exhausting oh well I'll take more credit for it next time definitely <laughs> now I feel like you've just the way that you were describing that as well you've just summed up I think as well why it's so hard to practice a language that you're learning where you're mm -hmm. not that good yet and you're still thinking in your native language and you, you must, there is no way. You know, sometimes people think, oh, if we just eliminate the native language, but you, I don't think you can. I don't think, I think you will form your message. It takes a long, long time before you, you take your own native language out of, you know, that environment. And I think there's a long, long arduous process, certainly experientially, I feel that way, where you, where speaking your target language that you don't actually know that well yet that you are learning that you want to be really good at is the hardest thing ever oh absolutely and you know we don't know enough yet about the social aspects of learning and how dynamic this process is when we've already formed habits in our first language right mm. so we've already formed habits about how we use language in one language that we already know. And now we're having to disrupt those habits and learn then a new set of habits for another, you know, language speaking community and figure out how to manage that as we're learning just the properties of the language, learning the words and how those words go into a particular order, uh, conjugating verbs if it's one of those languages, you know, so Spanish, any of these romance languages will, will definitely do that to you in a way that Chinese won't, um, which is a whole different kind of problem for people who are going from a non-tonal language to a tonal language. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have all these interesting challenges when we're learning this, the second language and we still don't understand the dynamics of this learning process yet, but it is something that is challenging. And so, you know, if you are going into this situation, the best thing you can do is just give yourself a lot of love and support because you are doing something that is incredibly hard. Like, have you ever had to break some other habit? Like, it's like for people who have maybe a habit where, you know, it's it's kind of like, oh, I um, I have this habit of drinking a lot of soda. And now I'm trying to get myself from not drinking so much soda because I need to take better care of my health. And I know that taking care of my health is going to be good for me and drinking less soda will be good for me. But it's really hard to wean yourself off of something that you've developed a habit of doing. Mm -hmm. You've developed a taste for doing this thing. And it's the same kind of thing with language. We've developed a, a way, a strategy of doing language. And now we're disrupting that when we learn another one. And while it's a good thing, I think it's socially and potentially cognitively beneficial. Uh, the jury's not quite out yet on the cognitive aspect, but I definitely think socially it's advantageous to learn another language. Um, it's interesting that despite the good benefits that come from it, it is a difficult challenge when you're, when, especially when you're starting, um, later in your, you know, later in life. So basically after you're, you know, 10, 12 years old, um, it does get a little harder. It's, it's not impossible. It's just a little harder because mm -hmm. you've, you've further cemented those habits that you developed when you're a child. Mm. It, you've summed it up really well there. It's it's as if you, you don't want to drink any more fizzy drinks, as we call them in the UK, sort of sugary fizzy drinks. And you go, mm -hmm. I know, I'm going to have some water instead. And 
And then I think what also happens with language learners is the image that you have in your head is of like this ice chilled water that you have in the Caribbean. But in reality, you don't even know how to work a tap. Right. right. <laughs> You're just like that going, like, you don't even know where the water is and you've got to read the map to get to the tap and then you have to book a flight to get to the Caribbean and it's all this stuff. And, it, and all the while, I, some, I think... I think we tell ourselves so much off for not being in the Caribbean <laughs> when in fact if you're on the way. Oh Exactly. Now I wanted to ask you, because we you sort of talked about bilingually and, and the kind of that language learning is good for us. And often you hear things like I think there's been some research in bilinguals who are more not born bilingual, but you know, like kids who acquire two languages at the same time. And often you hear this delays the onset of Alzheimer's, delays the onset of dementia, it'll keep you healthier for longer. Now, what's your view on this, the bilingual brain? Is it the healthiest brain? Is it? Oh, that's a good question. And this is where I say the jury's still out on this. Yeah, um, I know what I hope you'll is... say, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... You know, while the research by people like Ellen Bialystok, mm -hmm. who has really kind of sit at a, a, at this like um, at the center of this kind of research that you just mentioned about it, you may be staving off Alzheimer's and and other types of dementia and and, and any other type of cognitive degeneration mm -hmm. in the brain. Um, what's interesting is that these studies have not always been readily replicated. Um, so this is where we, we kind of sit at this problem of, okay, so why is it that in Canada, which is where Ellen Bialystok is, she's in, um, Toronto, mm -hmm. um, you know, where French and English, it's, it's very common to be bilingual in French and English in Canada, um, especially in parts of Western Canada, like Toronto and Montreal, especially in a place like Montreal. And, uh, you do have universities where they do bilingual education. So you can take courses in both languages because you're going to be expected to know both languages in these universities. Actually, um, I think Carleton Univers uh, Carleton University is one of these where they actually have, um, if they hire you as a faculty member, you have to learn, um, both languages. So if you're an English speaker, then you would have to learn French in order to be able to teach at Carleton because the expectation is that you would also be able to teach in French. It's wild. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so when it comes to, you know, bilinguals in that kind of situation, that could look and feel very different than bilinguals here in the United States, where they're actually feeling a lot of pressure to be an English monolingual, right? To be able to speak a certain flavor of English and do this every day, everywhere, because that is, you know, a social expectation. It's not something that's been enforced by the government per se, but it is definitely socially expected, um, especially by people of power here in the United States, which is white people. Um, so there's this interesting thing here that we, we need to unpack when it comes to these social issues as it relates to being bilingual and what that means in terms of your brain. I'm not going to say that it won't, but I'm not going to say that it is. And that's just because um, we don't have clear evidence to so strongly support one over the other. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, there's, a, there's a prestigious flavor of bilingual more than some other flavors of bilingual, isn't there? Maybe, or it might just have to do with, you know, going back to context. So, um, maybe there's something that has to do with the amount of engaging with multiple languages at any given point. You know, if you spend most of your day being going back and forth between English and French versus, mm -hmm. you know, you spend most of your day only engaging in English, that could lead to differences. And we don't have longitudinal studies, so studies where we can track this with people over time to really measure that, right? Yeah. So we don't really know. Um, instead, the studies that suggest you can stave off, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, they're trying to basically control two populations 
at, you know, older ages. So you have a monolingual group or quote unquote monolingual group and a bilingual group who are as matched as they can be by a number of factors from socioeconomic status to IQ to like all kinds of things and, and try to establish that in that way. Um, so we, there's just still a lot we don't know in terms of the neuroscience. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to socially, I think it is advantageous because imagine how much res- how much more resourceful you can be to, you know, maybe find the right doctor or be in the right situation to get any help that you need wherever you are in whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. And that even includes accessing adequate health care. Um, so we... We can't shirk or or laugh at the social benefits because sometimes those social benefits, you know, do lead to things like longevity in life. But um, unfortunately, we just don't have the research to strongly support this idea that, yeah, bilingualism will um, enhance your brain in a way that will prevent dementia and Alzheimer's and these kinds of things. Mm. That is a very, very fair answer. You know what? You know one of my um, <laughs> one of my favorite sort of possibly slightly junky science sort of facts that um, a study was published because somebody was marketing something mm-hmm. is that bilinguals. Uh, I think it was by a dating app. Bilinguals are sexier, <laughs> so it's worth it just for that, right? You know what? I want that to be right. I'm okay <laughs> with that. I'm absolutely okay with that. I will tell that to people, even though I don't know the science behind it. But, you know, there is something about, there's also something about accents too. Like when, when people from the UK come to the United States and we hear that British accent, it's like, oh my God. Like, uh, like Americans are just like, yes, keep saying things, say whatever you want. It's wonderful. And it's funny because when I, I visited London uh, in 2019, thank God before COVID, uh, I went to visit London for my, for my birthday and I got the same kind of thing. People realized that I was American and of all things, I'm also, you know, exotic looking black American because I don't look straight up black to people. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just funny because then even in London, I would be at, you know, a pub and people were just like, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from the United States. And then they just wanted me to keep talking because they wanted to hear my accent. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's it's fascinating that, you know, even with dialects and accents, we, we see the sexiness and appeal. So I'll take that to the grave. Yes, bilinguals are sexy. Like I will, I'll definitely uh, keep touting that one around because I, like who doesn't want to be considered sexy? Like that's it. That's come it. On. And you know, <laughs> science says so. Um. <laughs> Apparently, Apparently, now I'm gonna go on a, a Google Scholar search and try to find. This. Oh my god! If you find something, please let me know. But until For then, sure. I'll run with it anecdotally. Of course, I found this to be true. <laughs> <laughs> now I have one more listener question that I want to I want to pose to you, and then I have sort of a final question for you because. We, okay. we sadly can't make the world's longest podcast, but I want to just listen to you for ages and ages and ages. And I'll ask you the listener question first, though. The f- first question, it was asked to me, but I don't really know the answer. And I thought, let's take it to, let's take it to the scientist. Um, this is from Owen. And he says, he, it was addressed to me. So it said, I have listened to how you mentioned you sometimes mix German into English because your English is so automatic these days. So this is true for me. English is the language that I speak most and my everyday life is all English. Uh, When I speak German, English will interfere more than when I speak English, German interfering. Uh, And then it kind of goes away after a few days. And he says, at what point does your second language become so prominent in your mind that it replaces your native language? Or how can your second language replace or take over your native language? And this is sort of a, a question that sometimes I get and sometimes I think that we wonder is, can we ever push out our, I don't know, our native language? Can I learn so much English that I don't speak German anymore? So, hi, Owen. Um, I know you weren't directing this question to me, but I'm going to take it over anyways. Um, uh, thank and I will you for that. say that the short answer is yes, but don't don't be discouraged by this. <laughs> so the short answer is no yes. Way. But it's not 
it's not as bad as you might think. So um, remember how you mentioned how language is a social thing and it's in a way almost like habit forming. Uh, we see this a lot where, especially here in the United States, where um, we, we have this phenomenon called language attrition. And it's this idea that over generations within a family, the heritage language or the mother language fades out and gets replaced by English at least here in the United States, because that's the dominant language. And this has a lot to do with that word dominance. Um, when we are constantly engaged in our second language, such that it is the dominant language in our day-to-day life, in a way it does kind of push out that native language from being, um, from being just as comfortable or as fluent as you might've been before this whole dominance effect happened. But my personal opinion, um, I don't know of the research to a full extent, but there is, um, there is some work that suggests that even if your native language becomes your less dominant language, it doesn't mean that you've lost it. It just means it kind of went like dormant is probably the best way I can put it. Because our brains are really ecological. Our brains want to do what makes the most sense to be as resourceful and as effective as possible. So if that means focusing on the neuronal populations that help you access English or for whatever reason, then that might be the case. Now, the reason why I say dormant is because we do have evidence um, of basically people who were adopted out of one country into another country. And after years of growing up monolingual in this second language, they are still able to tap into what they learned as a baby, which is insane. So um, there's uh, some researchers, including Janet O, who's, I believe, still at Cal State Northridge, California State University at Northridge, I should say it fully because not everyone's going to know what that means um, outside of the context of the U.S. So um, Janet O oh has done research with Korean adoptees. So these would be Korean children who grew up in Korea for the first maybe year or two of life, and then were adopted and raised in the United States. And so they basically only speak English. What she found was that these adoptees, even though they spent most of their life now in English, were still able to tap into their Korean once they started to learn Korean formally. So once they started learning for Korean formally, they were able to produce sounds that sounded more native-like than someone who never had that experience growing up as a child. And that tells at least... That tells me, or at least encourages me to say that maybe what we're doing is we still have access to that learning. It's just gone dormant. And so we now have to go back in and just reactivate those neuronal populations that allow us to do our native language. And that still comes with a, a learning curve. And so you probably experience this when you go to a German speaking country and you have to refamiliarize yourself. But in a way, it, it all comes back. Um, to, to say it simply. So yes, but don't be discouraged because it's not, it's not gone. It's not like you put it in the trash folder and accidentally deleted it and it's gone forever. (laughs) It's really just somewhere hidden on your desktop and now you have to find it again. If if that's a a good analogy. (laughs) That's such a PhD student's analogy. (laughs) I've done this so many times now that, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's funny because I sometimes, you know, I work with so many people who are these ambitious, highly motivated, highly dedicated, really aiming high language learners. And I think almost that sometimes we idealize this idea of becoming so good in our target language that it almost takes over. Mm-hmm. And my my response to that is usually like you you cannot intentionally do that without changing your entire life around. Right. No, you can't. Which has been my mm-hmm. experience, but it's all I know about. And and we have to remember that again, language is very much attached to our identities. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay that you have an accent. It's okay if you feel like, oh, this other language is like taking over my life, because at the end of the day, that part of your identity never goes away. And so that part of language never really goes away. 
Um, and, you know, instead what you'll find is that once you get out of this learning stage and become comfortable and proficient, that things start to actually level out. And we have some, some studies to suggest that there, it, there's increasing convergence mm-hmm. of the brain regions that get activated when, when you become more highly proficient versus when you're not as proficient in one language compared to another. And so we really see that the brain then works to utilize the same resources to be able to proficiently engage in those two languages once we've become highly proficient in both of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you never, you never lose it. It just sometimes like that, it's just not high on the priority list at that given point, but it, don't worry. Once that priority has been taken off, like things kind of balance out and level out depending on what your communicative needs are. If you go into environments where you're constantly going back and forth, you'll find that you'll probably be very comfortable in both and can, you know, easily converse in both. Um, that might not necessarily be the case though, when it comes to, if you end up being only in an English speaking environment and then you never tap into your German again, you know, it doesn't change your identity, but it definitely makes it a little harder to find your German again when you need it. I love this. You, I love the, the way you're opening up an attitude for, for me and a point of view that, that I would certainly encourage language learners to consider as well, which is sort of from all you're telling me, my brain knows what it's doing. I don't really need mm-hmm. to like go in and try and super control it. It's 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 doing it's doing what it should. It's doing you know it's doing things that that support me. Absolutely, that's cool. Now, <laughs> I I have way more questions. I think I I as we are talking, I come come up with more and more and more. But we are we are sort of coming to the end of the fluent show episode. So I'm going to ask you those when I'm in New York and we're having a cocktail and it's warm and I brought my microphone yes (laughs) we're hanging out but one question that I really like asking my guests is if there was one thing that you could change about your your language life or your work with languages what would be something that you would want to change for the future the thing that I want to change which is actually a goal of mine is to learn how to actually talk about my research in Korean so we talk about this thing where we're, where we're talking about being bilingual. And as much as I am very comfortable speaking Korean, talking about food or current events or, you know, you know, sipping tea with my girlfriends, whatever the case may be, I know that I'm very comfortable talking about my research in English. But when I have to actually talk about Yonggu, Yonggu being the Korean word for research, like, it's really hard for me to try and give a presentation or give a talk about my research in Korean, even though it is one of my native languages. And this also speaks to, you know, we develop words and phrases that we, in our respective languages, based off of what our needs are, like what are our communicative needs. And up until now, up until I started my PhD journey, I didn't need to actually speak Korean to talk about my research because all I'm doing any, at any given point is talking about it in English. And that's pretty much the dominant language in academia. And what would be nice is that I can then go to my mom's family in Korea and be able to tell them about my research in Korean. Like that's like, aside from like words, a few words here and there, it's hard for me to actually construct full sentences around what it is that I'm doing. Like, I can't imagine explaining MEG and EEG in Korean because it's just like, oh, I don't even know where to begin, you know? So that's something that I would like to change. And I think that even once we become highly proficient, there are always words that we're not going to know. And there's always phrases that we don't always use, but it doesn't mean that I'm less of a Korean speaker. It just means that oh, this is a new domain for me and, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to make the changes to enter into that new domain because there's exciting research that is also happening in Seoul at Seoul National University. They have an MEG machine there. And so it would be nice to maybe one day maybe do some work there or engage at least with the researchers that are there since uh, they they would be interested in what I do here. So yeah, that would be that. Yeah, you'd yeah. be doing your, your bit for international collaboration and for your own research and oh that's that's really I love that that's a a beautiful ambition and a beautiful sort of vision to work towards thank you so much for sharing that Sarah that's really cool 
Of course. Thank you. <laughs> Please, can you share where people could find you online to ask you more questions? Absolutely. So, of course, I have a website. It's sarahfphillips.com. So, S-A-R-A-H-F-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. I also am accessible on Instagram and Twitter. Both my Instagram and Twitter handles are the same. It's Sarah Linguist, S-A-R-A-H-L-I-N-G-U-I-S-T. So you can access me either through my website or Instagram or Twitter, whichever appeals to you. I think Twitter has been the most common mode for people to engage with me, but um, all three work. Brilliant. So that's Sarah F. Phillips, my guest, and Sarah Linguist, my guest on The Fluent Show today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time, for coming, for being so enthusiastic, for uh, letting some random ladies send you tweets and then agreeing to be on a podcast because I found you on Twitter. So absolutely delightful. I'm I'm so grateful that we had, my God, the, the scientist was in. We've got some proper answers here. This is great. Uh, now, let me conclude. Uh, first of all, listeners, thank you so much for listening to the show as well. As always, you can send me your feedback. That is hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk. And you can find the show notes. And I'm going to find links to Ellen Bianistock and Janet O and what some kind of online explanation of what fMRI, MEG and EEG are as well. So I'll collect some links for you and you'll find all of those on the show notes page, which is fluent.show slash 209. And that's also where you can read Sarah's bio and find all of her social media links. So we've got it all for you. Sarah, that will be, that's us then. And sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> So with all that being said, it is goodbye from me. Goodbye. And goodbye from Sarah Phillips. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.